If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Listeners, this is such a special, special episode. If all of the stars align, this will be our 200th episode. And I know I've shared this before on the podcast, but I am so grateful for this podcasting journey and for every single person, whether you download once a year or you download every week. I am so grateful that you have been with me on this podcasting journey. And it frankly really has been a journey. You know, there have been times that I've made some really big mistakes with the podcast and kind of figured out what I needed to do differently and forgave myself and moved it forward. But this is just a journey, and I'm so thankful for you. The journey will continue, and I certainly hope in a couple of years I'm saying to you that it's the 300th episode. But it's appropriate for our 200th episode that we bring back one of our rock star guests, Beth Cantor, who was on episode 29 of the podcast, back when the audio quality was so bad, you can't even get that on your RSS feed anymore. You can only get that episode on the website. And you probably already know Beth Cantor. She literally, in the nonprofit world, is someone who requires absolutely no introduction. But you know what? I'm going to go ahead and tell you about Beth anyway. Beth is, without a doubt, one of the gurus of the nonprofit sector around self-care. If you tuned into the first episode, you probably heard about her burnout story and how she learned about the importance of self-care. And ever since then, she has been really an evangelist in our sector for those of us that work in it to take care of ourselves and hopefully take care of ourselves in such a way that we have something left over for not just our organizations and not just our family, but for us. That's right. I know that may sound selfish, but for us us. Over the course of the last many years, 
Beth has just done phenomenal work, keynote speaker, workshops, trainings, etc. And you may know her for her book, The Happy Healthy Nonprofit, Strategies for Impact Without Burnout. And so today we're going to have this conversation with Beth because self-care never goes out of style. Hey, Beth, welcome back to the podcast. I'm thrilled to have you on episode 200. I am so thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, I understand that you were recently featured in a Wall Street Journal article. Yes, earlier this week, um, there was an article about uh, the fake commute. And I've been a real advocate of that since the pandemic. And the fake commute is actually that you uh, take over your commuting time if you're used to commuting um, and you go outside for a walk or you do something and what that does is it creates a buffer or a boundary between your work life at home and your life at home and and that's one of the things that uh, we've lost by having to work from home um, it makes it challenging for work-life balance is that we don't we don't you know we don't have those buffer times so you know the weekdays feel like weekends and the mornings melt into the afternoons and it, it becomes really easy for us to overwork and then of course that leads to stress and can lead to burnout so I pretty early on in the pandemic I you know pulled out every single self-care tool <laughs> that I wrote about my book and started practicing um, it myself. So I, I, you know, every morning I start and I go out and I take about, you know, half hour, 45 minute walk around the neighborhood. I have different routes. I'm um, in California. So when I first started, it was really wonderful because it was spring here and the flowers were blooming and I got to practice a little mindfulness. I, I almost at one point felt like I was on vacation because I was observing and discovering things that I hadn't seen before. And that opened me up to new interests. And it just was a huge boost to um, my mental health and my work-life balance, but also my physical health. Because walking, I, I mean, it's terrific medicine. Right before the pandemic, I had gone in for my annual physical and my cholesterol had creeped back up because I wasn't as active um, as I should be. And that has an impact on your cholesterol. And so my doctor said, before I get, you know, give you any medicines, get back to your walking routine. And I did. And just a few weeks ago, I tested back in the normal range. So I highly recommend you know, if you're able, I don't want to be ableist, uh, you can stroll <laughs> or you can do other things, but movement or just something that you can do to put a boundary around your workday. So I've just got to share with you, I love that. And part of what I like about it is creating it as a fake commute. When the weather was nice, we at our household were doing a really good job of going for a walk every day after work. And, you know, we, we live in the Atlanta area, which it's not horrible, but like today it's in the 30s. And by the way, I know this is airing in April. We're recording it in January. So, you know, today it's in the 30s most of the day. And so consequently, like, like there actually are stretches of days when I don't even leave my apartment now. Whereas, you know, a year ago pre-pandemic, I would normally be on a plane two or three times a week. So, I mean, I was out and about and active and doing things. And now winter has come, the days are short. And as I said, literally, I get up, I shower, I have some breakfast, I go to work, work ends, I make dinner, and boom, the day's over. So I love this idea of a fake commute. 
But you know, I, one thing I do want to say, I, as a person who was um, born on the East Coast and I lived up in New England for many years, went to school in New England, I'm only a recent California transplant and Northern California, not Southern California. So we do get some cold weather here, cold, cold air quotes, uh, <laughs> you know, in the forties, that's cold here. Um, and, but it does rain, not so much recently, but you know, even when it rains, I put my my raincoat on. And I mean, I would encourage you to go take that walk, even if it's cold, to get a warm coat. It's refreshing. Oh, no, I'm right there with you. And I think I may have shared with you before we were taping that when I lived in Philadelphia, I walked to work almost every day. And, you know, it, it can get down to the teens for weeks in Philly. And, you know, yeah, I grew up in Phil the Philly area. Yeah. So, so you know, like, you know, it, it can get cold and doesn't get warm. It gets cold in November, doesn't really get warm until late April. And, you know, so obviously I'm okay with walking in the cold. I just need to start thinking of that as part of my routine and saying, oh yeah, this is time for me to have a fake commute. Let me go walk, walk to work. So you've done, that's really kind of the first step is to kind of say, okay, I'm going to make a commitment. I'm going to shift something because really self-care is about establishing some new habits that build your personal resilience. And so the thing that happens to us, and I interviewed habit change experts like BJ Fogg, who's actually right here in California. The reason we don't do it is that, because it's just a big change. So the way that you can sort of game yourself is to use like the tiny habits uh, framework. So you have to make your habit, new habit tiny. So instead of like, I'm gonna go walk 10 miles, I'm just gonna walk around the block, right? That's tiny. Then you have to anchor it to an existing habit, something that you're doing every day. You know, when I wake up after I brush my teeth and after I commute down the hall and have my coffee, then I'm going to get up and go out for a walk. And then it's just training that cycle. And when you do it, you're celebrating and saying, yay me. So start small, anchor it to some existing behavior and then celebrate the fact that you've done it. And over time, you'll create that habit and then you can start to build on it. Well, and I'm also kind of lucky in that I love walking. Like there's just something for me about moving myself in a city or a place. I love, love walking. So it's not something that I really have to think hard to be like, oh, yeah, I need to go do it. I just need to set the time aside and say, yeah, okay, it's time for time for my little 30-minute walk. But, you know, we also have to be careful. I think, you know, those of us who can walk, there are people who can't walk, but it doesn't mean that they can't also do a fake commute. Um, in the Wall Street Journal article where I was profiled, they profiled some other people. And there was a person who was in a wheelchair and his fake commute, you know, he would get on the bus and get to work, um, you know, on his wheelchair and he would read. And so now at home, he gets up and he reads before he starts his work day. So there's lots of ways to like, you know, fake commute is one tactic that you can use to sort of use your commuting time. Right. Well, and by the way, my husband kind of teases me a little bit because he and I have very different morning rituals. When you say read, it reminded me of this. So uh, I'm always so impressed with him. He can shave, shower, get in a suit and be out the door in 25 minutes. Like from the moment he wakes up to the moment he leaves. I reliably now need like an hour and 45 minutes. It involves first sitting in the living room and just literally sitting there quiet while it's still dark out and just remembering who I am and where I am in the world. And then it's starting to stir and reading for a little bit. 
And then I'll write a little something or make a list or something like that. But it's funny because I kind of have some of those rituals where it's hard for me to get ready. Like back when I used to fly a lot, if I had a morning that I had a 7 a.m. flight, it was a tough morning for me. Oh, yeah. Uh, You know, you're also bringing up something else that's also really important about self-care. It doesn't have to be the exact same ritual or thing that you do, but it has to be something that you find that's calming, that you like to do, that you'll do it and that it's for you. And um, so what I, in addition to walking, I have like my self-care repertoire because some days like I do have early meetings. I have clients in Europe. And so that means here in California, I have to get up early. You know, I can't necessarily do my sort of walking commute self-care thing. So I have a repertoire of things. I can do a shorter commute. I can do, I do uh, journaling. I have a huge fountain pen collection and I'm a big fan of calligraphy. That's another thing I've, I've been practicing my calligraphy. I um, also like to read. No, I don't read work-related stuff you know, or I don't, I avoid any electronics in the morning. One thing I, the journal I'm doing is from uh, Gretchen Rubin's happiness journal. I started it five years ago. It's a five-year journal. It's awesome. It's the one sentence happiness journal. And so each page of the journal, you have a spot for five years. So on this day, what are we? January 15th. Mm-hmm. Is that what today is? I, I think so. <laughs> See, yeah. We, we, yeah we, it's Friday, right? Um, January 15th, 2021, 2022. And you just write one sentence, but I've been doing this since when I was researching the book five years ago. So now I get up and I do my one sentence journal and I can look back over the last five years. And I'm like, what was I doing? And it's just you know, a rich reflection and reflection is a way also of kind of like being in the moment and reducing that stress. So real quick, I adore Gretchen Rubin's work and her book, The Happiness Project was formative for me, really formative. And the, ha- and the habits book too. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You know, well, one of the things I loved in her habits book, book, and and I need to remember how she referred to them, but she talks about these personality types, you know, you know, like, like you're the, and now of course I'm going to blank on the, but, but it's things like, like the different archetypes about how you approach the world and right, right, right. And really what it boils down to is, you know, is your locus of control internal or external? So, you know, so do you need external enforcement or internal enforcement and what works best for you? Oh my gosh. That was such, also such a powerful book for me. We could go down the Gretchen Rubin rabbit hole, but what I really love about her writing, especially the book on habits, she was very self-reflective. So she she obviously researched it really well. So you would read about this particular psychological theory and this is why this thing happens. And then she would apply it to herself and then write about what she learned about herself. And I just thought, wow, this is so great. But the thing that's also in the diary is that each day has a quote. And so then I take the quote and with one of my fountain pens and I have another notebook where I write out the quote in my longhand just to practice my calligraphy and handwriting because I did read something about sort of the hand-eye coordination and the fact of writing can be really, it's a form of mindfulness and it, it activates a different part of the brain and it helps with concentration. I'm not a meditator really, <laughs> but this is, that's my form of meditation. Oh my gosh, I love that. That's really incredible. Yeah, so, and, and it's my excuse to buy fountain pens and more magic markers. So I, I'll share with you, um, I only actually have one fountain pen, but I have, I have one really nice mechanical pencil and 
one really nice pen and then an okay fountain pen. But I love writing with my fountain pen. And by the way, one of the things I should share with you, the off the map question today is actually going to be about fountain pens. All right. Yeah. Okay. So you're going to tell me what kind, what brand of fountain pen? No. Do you know? So, okay. well, you know what? So listeners, we're, this is the 200th episode. We're throwing out all the rules. Normally the off the map question is the last question we ask. We're going to stick it in the middle. No, I was going to ask you your favorite type of fountain pen. So like in terms of typology. So are you a piston fountain pen, a crescent fountain pen? Like what's the fountain pen, the cartridge one? Like, well, you know, what, what fountain pen do you like to use? Well, you know, the filling, what you're referring to as the filling mechanism of the pen. It's how uh, the pen sucks in the ink. Okay. So that doesn't matter to me so much. I, t you know, I, I tend to like the piston type of converters, the classic kind. I don't like the squeezy ones. And, um, but uh, there's particular brands of fountain pens that um, that are fantastic. And two of my favorites, I can't pick just two, but um, the first is Parker pens because that's what my dad used. He was a fountain pen addict too. And so I have a couple of his fountain, fountain pens. He has sadly passed away. And the other is Montegraffa, which is from uh, north of Milan in Italy, and they are exquisite pens. And I couldn't even afford the higher end pens. I mean, they're like obscenely expensive, but they have a quote lower cost one, and I I have one. It's beautiful. It's like a it, it's like a plastic acrylic, and it's um it's it's like an ocean. It's called Ocean Ripple, and it's absolutely beautiful. And then I try to pair it with the perfect ocean blue ripple ink see if you uh, if you like fountain pens and you collect them then you also collect ink right so um i now have to share with you because we're going to go down this rabbit hole just a little bit further i think for the longest time i could not understand one of my nephews who's now in his 20s but when he was a late teenager because he he was collecting really expensive tennis shoes and i just remember really being puzzled by this and one day he was explaining to me how he felt about his tennis shoes and why they were important to him. And I was like, and I said this to him, I was like, Aiden, oh my gosh, I get this. This is like my pens. And he says, what do you mean? And I said, oh, well, this pair of tennis shoes that you just described to me about what you spent on it, I spent on a pen or a mechanical pencil. I only have like three or four of them. And he looks at me and he's like, I'd never spend that kind of money on a pen. And I said to him, Yes, this is why your tennis shoes are like my pen. <laughs> That's funny. You know, because it's funny, like it is all kind of about priorities. And, you know, for some people, really, really expensive set of tennis shoes is, is the deal. And for other people, it's the pen. Right, or the art supplies. I'm also an art supply addict, a magic marker addict. You know, I do a lot of creative work, too, just as a hobby. And... Somehow the hunt for the materials, the artistic creation materials is just, it's part of the artistic process. And to me, it's a very calming activity. I do something called Zentangles, which is meditative drawing. And, you know, it, they're kind of squiggly and you can fill them in. Or I, I do a lot of abstract kind of things, patterns. And it's just very calming and enjoyable. And I'm especially grateful now that I have other interest than work because can't do anything else. We're at home. I mean, I've started a succulent garden. I noticed my neighbor's succulent plants. And then I thought, oh, I would like a succulent garden. And I, we designed one and we, we, we built it. So 
one of the things you've you've kind of alluded to, and I think you're 100 percent right. And I think when this airs in April, this will still be the case. Many of us in the sector are working from home every day, and I also kind of get the sense that for some people, there's starting to be not just some, but a good little bit of fatigue around this. Like, you know, by the time this airs in April, a lot of people will have been working from home for 12 months. Uh, and not everyone, lo- well, I kind of like working from home. Not everyone loves working from home. Absolutely. I think the biggest issue is something that we talked about is this ability to, you know, set boundaries, you know, uh, between your work life and personal life. I think part of it is that we can't go, we can't go anywhere, really. We can't go out to a restaurant, mm-hmm. at least in California. I don't know what it's like in Atlanta or where your listeners are listening from. I assume it's probably like here where we, you know, we can only get takeout. We can can't go to a restaurant. We can't go to a museum. We can't go out to a concert. We can't just go to the grocery store, you know, because it's it's even dangerous to go to the grocery store. Um, we're, we're getting deliveries. We can go out hiking <laughs> and walking, so we, so we do that. Um, so that's one piece. I think another piece of it is also with work. Uh, while you and I might be used to already working at home and working remotely, I you know I had been doing that for many 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 years, but now that everybody's remote. It's really hard because um, we're used to making a lot of decisions in real time together and having that the sensory of being able to see each other like or to be in the same room. You know, I'm we're on Zoom together now so I can look in the background. I can say, oh, that's a poster or whatever, but it's different. It's a technology mediated experience. Right. And then there's the the, I only can see, you know, we can only see each other really are, you know, our headshots. You can't see what our hands are doing and that. And if you're in a Zoom meeting and there's a temptation to multitask and that can be exhausting. There's also um, something called the self-complexity theory. It's the ability to have a different presence in different situations. So I have my, my presence as a mother or as a wife or at home, but also in the workplace. But now it's all blended and that can lead to negative uh, self-talks. There's also hyper awareness, verbal cue overload. <laughs> I think that's the term. Um, you and I are having this conversation and we can see each other's faces and staring into another person's face, that's usually something that you reserve for an intimate relationship. And now when we're, we have our team meetings, um, I'm, I meet with a lot of different people. So all of a sudden, like I'm staring into the eyes of strangers. So there's a lot that's going on and causing stress and fatigue from the mediation of our both our work interactions and our life interactions um, through technology. And that's part of the reason why we're feeling it. Not to mention just like this ongoing, we're not immune to what's happening in the outside world. And there's a lot, you, you and I are talking in January before before January 20th. So there's a lot going on right now and God knows what's gonna go on in April and what's gone on for the last, you know, year, almost year with, with COVID and um, racial equity movement and financial problems and, all of these things and this sort of stress, the stress is really taking a toll. I mean, we're going to see a probably, a, a, if it's not already happening, a, a mental health epidemic. And that's something probably we need to be thinking about as nonprofits going, as we contemplate at some point in 2021 going back into the workplace. Right. You know, to pivot on that, really thinking about how we as organizations are going to be taking care of our team members who might be coming back really wounded. Absolutely, and how we have to destigmatize—you um, know—asking for for health or mental health support, and how we have to really. I know I just heard a conversation the other day with an executive director of an organization, where he said, "I'm, you know, I, I offered to pay the copays for my staff." Wow. 
you know, and, and encouraging them if you need help, um, get it. And um, I think I saw some statistics, where was it? It was in Kaiser Health study about the number of people that are reporting depression and anxiety symptoms. And, and the number of people being screened for these symptoms is also dramatically increased. One of the things that I've shared with some of my clients and former clients over the last couple months is oftentimes you can get like an EAP program through your payroll provider. And while, you know, it's relatively limited, each employee is limited to maybe three or four EAP sessions and employee assistance program sessions in a year. It's also not a terribly expensive benefit to provide based on what they get. So it's, you know, typically a couple bucks per employee per pay period. And sometimes just that person who you can talk to who will help you figure out either how to make this a little bit better or how to get the help you need and destigmatize that's really important. Sometimes you don't feel like you can go to your manager with it. I think so too. Exactly. And I think having the uh, EAP program is really essential as a benefit, you know, it might be, and now, especially as coming off of COVID and also having resources available to people. I mean, there are, it's not as good as seeing a professional, obviously, and in certain cases, you may absolutely need to see a professional, but there are also resources that you can provide that, that can provide some help, you know, a, a lot of free resources, even a lot of the apps around, you know, helping you learn how to meditate, which can reduce some of that anxiety and stress. I mean, when it's on the mild end of the continuum, you know, you know, there's at some point where there is a need for a mental health professional intervention. So, so that is important, but the stigma of it can prevent someone from doing that. And that, you know, that could be a matter of life or death. Mm -hmm. And I'll also say, I kind of feel like as leaders in the sector, it's incumbent on us to lead by example when it comes to taking care of ourselves. And one of the examples I'll give is I was talking to a client toward the end of last year, toward the end of 2020. And this person's a chief executive. And I knew that this person had not taken any real vacation time all year. They'd taken a couple long weekends, but had not taken any real vacation time all year. And so I said, oh, do you have, do you have any plans to take time off around the holidays? And the person said, you know, I really don't. And I, I said to the chief executive, I'm concerned that maybe you're not taking care of yourself. And the chief executive replied to me that right now, while this has not always been the case, his organizational culture is people don't take time off. And I said to him, well, where do you think that's coming from? And he, because we're on a Zoom call, he looks at me and he's like, okay, that's fair. You know, like, you know, if you're, if you're the chief executive and you're not taking any time off, you shouldn't be surprised if your organizational culture, suddenly no one wants to take time off. Yeah. I mean, the leader's behavior, you know, and we're talking, that's a behavior is contagious, just as contagious as a, the coronavirus. So if you're a workaholic, then people assume that that's the, the, the norm. So what we need to do is to create calming norms, okay? We're not just working at home, you know, we're working at home during a global pandemic, insurrection and a, a, a racial equity movement. And, you know, so we have to like really shift and, and we have to have kinder, kinder work norms. We need to be focusing, not only just getting the work done, but how, you know, how people are feeling, what, what, what their energy level is. And also I think we have to have a new definition of productivity that has to shift. And um, other things that need to happen, this is maybe more tactical, but mindset wise, if you're managing somebody, you have to value screen time. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> you have to value, I always said it backwards. It's, it's Friday. You have to value deliverables 
versus screen and seat time, okay? So, um, so that means a couple of things. So if you're doing one-on-one -on -one check-ins, you might need to do them more often. You might have to have some interim types of check-ins, like have um, bullet points sent. Or maybe that person, instead of just giving this big deadline for a project, maybe some interim check-ins and some coaching help. The other thing that's really important getting back to the calming norms idea is that your check-ins can't be just about where's that report. <laughs> it can't be just about the deliverables. Yes, deliverables are important, but you also need to check in with the person. How are they doing? How is their energy level? What can I do as your manager to help, you know, support you? Uh, in some of the literature on employee morale and also mental health issues, this is pre-pandemic that, uh, you know, there are people who, you know, uh, there's suicide in the workplace, you know, it's something we don't talk about, but it does happen. And they're saying that the way to kind of prevent that, if there's toxic, you know, cultures is to really ask the question in your one on ones, how are you? You know, how are you? Right? Care about your people. And I'm not saying this is some hippie crap either. <laughs> well, and I also have to say, like, and sometimes not just taking fine for an answer. Fine means you're probably not doing that good. It's like your uh, kids, you know, it's like your teenagers. How you doing? Fine. Oh, okay. So can you say a little bit more about that? <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. You know, and I'm not saying, you know, you've got to pull out a chart of, you know, frowny face to smiley face and say, okay, where does fine fall on this chart? But you probably want to get a sense without pulling that chart out. Exactly. Like everything okay with your workload, <laughs> you know, everything okay with the team, you know, are things going okay at home, you know, are you, you know, especially during the pandemic, you know, because so many people, I mean, are also losing people too. So that's also going on. I'm just starting to see now, um, particularly communities of color, this has been the case since the start of the pandemic. I've been seeing in my uh, Facebook feed, I saw something right before we um, got on was it was a picture of a, a, a package that was a, um, arriving in the mail. It was a box, and on the outside it said "human remains," and basically, and the story was from somebody who had lost their mother to COVID, and the, and she couldn't see her at the end, and you know, had to be cremated, and she was receiving you know, the box of ashes. I mean, that's a dramatic example, but I'm I'm seeing as I go look on my in my Facebook friends, I'm seeing a lot of people posting about losing a parent to COVID or somebody in their family, you know, getting sick and dying. And, and I feel right. like we're as a nation, even that we're, you know, that we're surrounded by grief and we're also grieving the loss of our, our quote, normal lives, the, the, the our friendships mm -hmm. in the workplace. I mean, I probably you like I who traveled a lot. I mean, we're grieving our loss of, even though maybe we didn't like it all the time, <laughs> the loss of our air get to get on a plane and go someplace, you know? Right. To some extent, kind of the sense, and I and I think this is true whether or not you traveled a lot, the sense of loss of freedom. Oh, absolutely. Definitely. Well, like, uh, like, I get these urges now and then. It's like, I just tell my husband, let's go out to dinner. And then it's like, oh, we can't. Yeah. Well, and, and I'll share with you, um, since I live in Georgia, I live in one of those states where, well, thankfully, we did, we did send two Democrats to Senate and we did vote for Joe Biden. So thankfully. But I also live in one of those states that does has not required that restaurants close and you know my husband and I we don't go out to eat because we don't want to endanger ourselves or other people but um but yeah I hear you like there is kind of this sense of loss especially for for us I think for those of us that are in states that have not 
been as cautious and taken the same prudent measures, especially when we're seeing other people that are like, oh, it's not a big deal. I just go out. At least in California, people are pretty compliant with the mask order. When you go out, you see people, you know, every, we're supposed to, anytime we leave the house, we put a mask on. So I go walk the dog, I put on a mask. Anything but an essential service is closed. Restaurants can't there's no indoor dining. If you were to see me, you would say, Beth, your hair is the longest it's ever been. You can't get a haircut. <laughs> um, and they're even saying because community spread is so high here in California, advice, if you don't have to, if you can order your groceries and have them delivered, do that because there's to help the people who can't do that and to reduce crowds in the grocery stores because those are becoming a source of, you know, where people are catching it. And it's also really scary because they're, you know, the ICU beds are at almost at zero. And you think about like, God forbid, if we got sick. <laughs> so, I mean, we're not messing around. I'm really glad that that's, that is what you're doing. And, you know, in, in Georgia, Frank and I have had some conversations with loved ones where we've kind of had to say, yeah, we probably can't see you right now because we want to be able to see you next year. Yep, absolutely. Which, you know, frankly, is part of self-care. And sometimes we care for our community too, but that's part of self-care to say, okay, I'm going to make the sacrifice now so that, you know, I can be here with the person next year and they can be with me. Well, Beth, I am so grateful that you have joined us today to talk about self-care. I was going to say, we were we were going down the Debbie Downer. <laughs> and I think we yeah. should leave some people with some optimism, right? No, that is fair. I mean, I will say there are a lot of things that I am very, very hopeful about. Despite how dark it is and despite how dreary it is, there are so many things that I am hopeful about. I don't know as I've talked about this a lot on this podcast, but, you know, my husband and I were actually thinking about leaving the country depending how things turned out in 2020. And, you know, we, we see, you know, we see some light. We see the possibility that as a nation, in a lot of ways, we can be having some reckonings and turning some corners. And, well, in our own individual lives, that doesn't mean things get better immediately. Oh my gosh, the opportunity for what life might look like in two years or three years or four years. And, you know, early on in the pandemic, I was the interim of a, of a multi-million dollar organization. One of the things that I would say all the time with team members is, you know, we're going to get through this and we're going to get through this together and we're going to come out the other side stronger. And Beth, I really do believe that as, as a sector as communities and as a nation, I really believe we're going to come through this stronger. I totally there with you. I totally agree with you. And I think in order to maintain my sense of optimism, I um, I try to eat a rainbow every day. <laughs> and I heard that phrase from my good friend, John Hyden, who sadly passed away a year ago, but, and he, he was fighting cancer. And the way he got through it is he said, I eat a rainbow every day. And I said, what do you mean by that? He goes, well, it's healthy foods, you know, a rainbow of vegetables. But early on in the pandemic around here, um, families with kids were chalking uh, rainbows on the walks and then mm -hmm. leaving it. And so other people can walk and then find, see the rainbow, rainbow and it would give them some hope. So as long as we can consider that, you know, move from the trauma, um, then we move to adapt, uh, then we've evolved. And
and then and then we're liberated um, and we, we can reinvent what ourselves and we can reinvent our organizations and we can reinvent um, the way that we help people in our communities and we we just have to stay optimistic it's not easy but um, I think we can do it mm -hmm. we can we absolutely can and Beth I, I agree with you. that's a that's a much more positive way for us to, to close this out today so so thank you for saying okay let, let's let's take a right turn to the positive absolutely <laughs> Well, listeners, I, uh, as always, some things don't change in the 200th episode. We might, we might move when the off the map question is, but I always want to make sure that you know how to reach out to our guest. And you can find Beth at bethcantor.org. At that website, which, by the way, she's just redesigned and looks amazing. Because sometimes how we make lemonade out of a pandemic is we're like, oh, this is a good time while I'm at home to redesign the website and do some other things. So if you've not been to her website in a year or two, make sure you check it out. Her blog is as good as it's ever been, and it looks beautiful. Thank you. You can also find out—oh, you're so welcome. You can also find out about her resources, trainings— workshops, etc. You can find out all of that at BethCantor.org. You can also get the link to the Happy Healthy Nonprofit Strategies for Impact Without Burnout so that you can buy that book on Amazon. And finally, there is one new project that we really were not able to touch on today, but I want to make sure that you know about this URL. Beth is a part of AI for Giving Dot org and that's the number four giving.org and we've had other guests on the podcast we've talked about how artificial intelligence is going to be dramatically changing fundraising as we know it and that's what this website is really about it's uh, I think it's sponsored by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and so you know clearly they're putting some energy behind this as well. Beth, thank you so much for being on today. Thank you so much for inviting me and hang in there. <laughs> we will get through this. Exactly. We'll be one of those motivational posters, you know, the kittens hanging onto a limb <laughs> over, over a cliff and it says, hang in there. Listeners, as always, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me on this journey, wrapping up our 200th episode you know, when I first started this podcasting journey, I didn't know where it was going to lead. And that's probably, frankly, kind of a little bit of a failure on my part because I should have had more of a plan. But this podcast in my own life has unfolded in just some really beautiful and amazing ways. And I hope that you continue to get great value from the podcast and from the guests. Now, if you enjoyed this conversation with Beth Cantor, there are three. I know normally I only give you two. I'm giving you three this time, three episodes you should check out. The first one is episode 29, Impact Without Burnout with, guess who, Beth Cantor. Here's the trick on that, though. You're going to have to go to our website to listen to it because it's not available on our RSSS feed. The second one you should check out, episode 152, Using Scrum to Avoid Burnout with Diane Leonard. And the last one, episode 182, Life After Burnout with Bethany Planton and Trish Bachman. That, dear listeners, is our show for this week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help you and your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And, you know, I always give you a quick disclaimer. 
I'm not an accountant nor an attorney, and neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not designed to provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. If you find yourself in need of that, you know, I say at the end of every episode, I'm going to say it again, you should get some referrals and find a licensed, qualified, competent professional to help with those needs.